Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 25th of October 2015. Most folk today really can't read books, unfortunately. And many, many studies have been done. I've gone through them in the past and read them and put them in the archive section at cuttingthroughmatrix.com where MIT and others have studied uh, the, the human mind and <laughs> death ad infinitum. Uh, what they, and what they haven't studied really is nothing. They've studied everything about us as human creatures, you see. Habits, traits, and how we, how we can get programmed, peer pressure, and how it works in us, and how to use and utilize it, etc., for consensus building and opinion making and everything else. And behavior modification on a mass scale, of course. All scientifically done by your tax money working against you. And the tax money goes to employ all these different professors and so on to do all the different studies and write it up for their masters. And it's interesting to find out how everything today, like yesterday really, is run by the same families and dynasties. We see it, of course, in Britain. It was expected at Britain for a long, long time that the sons of politicians would go into politics. Now it's the sons and daughters, of course, going into politics. And the same with the House of Lords, etc. When you got your period, you were expected to take over from your daddy. And nothing's really changed because now with the total consolidation of all media and mainstream across the world pretty well, you have the same news given across the planet to every different outlet to make sure we all get the same standardized news. So opinion is standardized too, and documentation is standardized as to what you're going to be told and what you're going to end up believing as well. But Peter Wright, who worked for MI5 for a long time, who wrote a couple of books actually, one was called Spycatcher, and he mentioned, he was a head of MI5, uh, that he was employed uh, by quite quite easily past two for his entrance and so on, because his daddy, of course, was a long-time high-ranking guy in the, the Navy at one point attached to with intelligence. And he got into it himself through the same method. He said that they prefer in all government circles to employ family members into the civil service and so on, and, and in different agencies too, because they've all been well vetted. They, they know who their wives are. It's very important, of course, to have the right kind of wife uh, as well. And they know what uh, kind of doctrines are going to be taught at home to the children, how they're going to get brought up uh, with certain values that are authorized and so on. Uh, and they walk straight in basically to the civil service jobs. And in politics, of course, we have the same thing still today, where through, again, the, the, the big, you might say, the big celebrity-creating uh, machinery that worked with film stars to meet them stars before you heard the term stars were just actors and actresses and other stars. And they made stars simply by the propaganda machine behind it. And same with um, musicians, pop stars and all the rest of it, and rock stars. Same kind of thing goes on today. Uh, it's the same thing with politics. Same machinery, same techniques are used to bring someone into the limelight and give them a, a fake persona which is sold to the public until the public think they actually know the person and they'll go and vote for them because they're told to. 
in many, many different ways and prompts and all the rest of it, which they don't think through themselves. They don't know what's working on them. Uh, they just say, oh, I like that person, and uh, I'll vote for that, that person. And we have the dynasties going on, too, uh, from the very, very top, the supra-political system that runs the world, into the political system, of course, by the, the ones who all, all work uh, on the same agenda. There are no parties, as far as I'm concerned. I've watched since I was a little child how the left wing are always brought in at a certain time to push policies to internationalize things. And more, more apparent years ago, in fact, but it's still the same today. And when you were fed up getting taxed to death and all the rest of it, they'd bring in uh, the right wing parties who would pretend to be more nationalistic and, and take care of your interest, you see. But all the, the, the treaties they signed with the United Nations and all the different organizations under the umbrella of the United Nations never changed. No one came in and says, oh, well, we're tossing this out the window, even though you signed it, we'll tear it up. It's not good for the country. No one's ever done it, left wing, right wing. It just doesn't happen. Which tells you there's this really a, a super manager here above all other uh, governments, and including your own. Because obviously, if you really truly had different goals, you would have, for the nation, you would have parties that claim to be one way or another. You'd have them coming in and saying this is good or bad, and we're tearing it up because it's not good for, for our particular party's stance. It doesn't happen. They abide by them as though they're somehow written uh, in stone and brought down from the hill by Moses. So we're living through an agenda. I've mentioned this so many times. You're living through a script, really. I've gone through the United Nations strategy but with all of its different, different um, agendas and their time limits upon things, five-year plans, 10, 50, 100-year plans, and so on. And you're living through them. And it gets, it gets awfully boring when you realize what's coming up uh, way, way ahead, years before the general public really get a whiff of what's going on. Most of the public, of course, can't get a whiff because they're too busy working and struggling through their ordinary lives. Folk under 30 have been well catered to to really be distracted uh, with the promotion of hypersexualization and everything, uh, which keeps them as a, a child for much, much longer, you might say. And they're not really in, in, interested so much in what's going on and what's going to affect them. And... Um, and they're catered to with all the entertainment uh, galore on, on sexual themes, where it's music or anything else now. It's all the same kind of thing, movie industry, etc. So you have people getting... You're taught by many, many means to stay out of even being locally active in your little area. The ones who do go out in the local area are generally organized by the globalists, under non-governmental organization status, and, uh, and they go out and they're well-organized, well-run uh, by the United Nations and the overseers that even the United Nations is under, and they do all their organizing. But the general public don't know anything. Jack C. Lowell said it, the philosopher, the most folk learn by osmosis. And by that he meant uh, that bits and bytes really of information kind of filter through them as they go through their daily work. They catch little little phrases, bits of phrases here and there, and it forms their opinion. It works on them without them even knowing it's working on them. 
and even brings them to their conclusions and opinions on things. They, they become politically correct, even if they don't follow the news very much, because they don't consciously think through things. But all their little prompts and so on, and the psychological warfare techniques that's used on them, work awfully, awfully, awfully well. Very, very, very better than any guided missile. The whole idea of managing the general population, the so-called working class types, uh, called the proles by George Orwell from the proletariat, basically. He mentioned in his book 1984, that was published in 1948. And although the original title of the book that he wanted was The Last Man, meaning the last sentient human being who tried to put the little bits that he knew into action in a very, very small scale and suffered the consequences. The idea being, as O'Brien who tortures him says in, in the story, he says, if you were a man, Winston, then you're the last man. The idea that through scientific techniques and mass of data collection and so on on every single individual, constantly, they would know who would be a problem before it even became a problem and they deal with it. That's pretty well where we are today, isn't it? And there's a little bit of a spat between Orwell and uh, Aldous Huxley. Huxley, long before, in the 1930s, 1933, I think it was, came up with Brave New Worlds, where he had less of a totalitarian system being overt. It used more covert means to manipulate the people who were already genetically modified into uh, the division of labor from the very top, who were alphas and so alpha pluses and all that, right down to, to the bottom level of the workers. So they're designed for the particular work they'd have to do. That's not far-fetched at all, because that's where we're going. The spat between Orwell and Huxley was, was really uh, that Orwell was, was shaped by the big totalitarian movements of his day, the overtly totalitarian movements like the communist uh, or Bolshevik revolution, uh, which turned into the Soviet system, communism. Uh, where democracy was abolished altogether, although they often call themselves the free and democratic uh, state of so-and-so-and-so-and-so. Uh, there was no real democracy there. It was run by the dictatorship of the proletariat, which meant you had a dictator on top of you uh, rather than off the, the, the people. It was a dictatorship over the people. And, uh, and of course, the 1920s and 30s, into the 40s, which was full of that kind of stuff. The whole idea that the elite were on board with, with totalitarianism, and the supposed uh, opposition of the elite, which is to work together in tandem with a Galian dialectic to get the same goals achieved, the technique was to use um, revolution and running the takeover and put experts into running the world properly. That's never gone away. Today it's dressed up in business suits, uh, it's given fancy titles uh, with United Nations, things like that. But it's still as strong today as it ever, ever was. People can't recognize it simply because they don't wear the uniforms when you come on television as your prime minister or your president. You don't see yourselves or think of yourselves as being brainwashed because you're, you're, it's constantly drummed into you, you live in a free society. 
And yet you've been through the indoctrination process of the social engineering through the school system, which teaches you um, about special categories of people and which ones are higher than other ones. And you have to be a, a new minority to, to get special status, you see. Which is rather good for the opportunist because he or she will realize that they get priority hiring down the road if you simply join the right band, you see, and declare your this or that or whatever it happens to be trendy at the time. So there are many, many different facets to all of this, but getting back to the system, again, the system is totalitarian and, it, and it's a much more easygoing totalitarianism. We think, of course, we think so. Because you don't see uh, uh, the, the henchmen coming in Brave New World or, or, or even in um, George Orwell's 1984. You don't see them coming smashing your door down, except maybe in the States sometimes under the guise of uh, drug raids and so on. But you don't see them coming into your house because you've said something wrong. That, that's maybe happening now, actually, with all the politically correct uh, people around there and all the mandates of what you can say and what you can't say, what you can think and what you can't think. Because now it's going down to forbidding you to think about things. Who knows where it might lead, eh? A thought could lead you off to who knows where, eh? Upset the apple cart. So that's where you are today with all of this. But it's going somewhere, of course, and this talk is going somewhere. Because Orwell and Huxley tie in to this too. So does Peter Wright with his intergenerational employing, or employees, you might say, of family dynasties. You never see our ads going in the papers, the general papers for a top bureaucrat wanted for the government, or it doesn't happen that way. They do have their in-house ones for already established members to participate or compete to an extent. But, and even then, it depends on who you know and who daddy or mummy is or things like that, you see. So we really are, and I, I really believe this, we are the modern serfs. That's what we are. We're still modern serfs or proles. Make no bones about it. We are the proles. And as I always said, the proles don't count. The proles are the silent majority of people who are too busy scurrying and worrying and maybe carrying on two or three part-time jobs to try and just scrape by. And sometimes you get couples now doing the same thing. And try to raise a child if, if they've gone that far. A lot of folk today don't bother with children because they've followed the examples and so on. And all the prompts and indoctrination they were given in, in their early indoctrination years that children are economically expensive and can hold you back. Isn't that the old thing? They can hold you back from, well, the time they get established, it's like idiocracy, the beginning of idiocracy. Uh, eventually, the, the, they're either over the hill, or they're divorced, or the hubby or the wife has died, and it's too late to have a child at all. And they're following all the examples indoctrinated into them by the established order. Charles Galton Darwin, in his book, The Next Million Years, talked about ways to to discourage folk from having children. He was meaning the wrong kind of people having children. But he said materialism, this basic materialism can be used and promoted through constant advertising and so on. Would you rather have a car or have a couple of these children, you see? And there's a shiny car done in its usual uh, beautiful marketed way on, on a TV screen or whatever it happens to be. 
or a magazine. And it's so appealing, isn't it? And they sell you this idea of freedom. You buy the car and you've got freedom. And you're the only person in a road to sell you the fantasy. Well, well good luck and find a place today where there's another car on the road. Although that'll come down in the future with Agenda 21, when private vehicles will be outlawed. You see. So anyway, back again to, to intergenerationalism. I'm just going to touch on... Again, this beautiful system of how you get fed up. That's what democracy is to the general public. You get fed up with the, the bunches in power now uh, because of all the wrong things that you know has affected you and your finances and everything else and your job outlook, and you vote the next bunch in. So you're really, you're really simply voting the last bunch out, you see. And when they want the, the conservatives, as I say, to come in, it's because they want to privatize everything again, well, in the old days, not now though, the old days, the left wing would always uh, nationalize something and get the, your tax money to make all the big infrastructure work. Uh, the train services, uh, everything was nationalized in Britain and parts of Europe and so on. And then, of course, once the, they've uh, been nationalized uh, and the tax money's going into repairing all the railroad lines and get new equipment and new engines and all the rest of it, then they play the trick off when the next bunch come in. Uh, they privatize it again, and you've paid for all the, the upgrading to it, and it's, they, it's, they get it for peanuts. It's a, it's a con. Democracy is a con. It's well worked out this way. Well, in Canada, of course, you've noticed that Justin Trudeau, the son of Pierre Trudeau, has been elected in as prime minister. And that's not by chance either at this time, you see. Because we're coming up in December to the signing of the Big. This this is this has been years and years in the works. The final signing of the climate treaty, with its carbon taxes, cap and trade, uh, energy taxes, and and right down to a tribunal, just like the World Trade Organization's got this private secret court that fines nations for not complying for certain things and so on. Well. We don't even know who the judges are in the WTO. It'll be the same with this one, too. But when they find nations, that means you're the taxpayer that funds it. It pays it all. And most folk are being taught, lulled into sleep, but it won't really affect you that much. It's for big businesses. No, it's not, folks. It's for you. It's for all of you. This is to change your entire way of living and to give the go-ahead for the legalization of the experts to come out openly saying we run your whole lives, obey, 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 with all the different government agencies coupled with all the, the international agencies in the United Nations. So this will be the signing into it by Canada and other countries. And once you're into it, folks, they're, they're never going to get out of it. Once it's all in the books, it's legal now to be run under this global governmental system, openly, every facet of your lives. They'll expand the laws, just like they always do. They put a law in the books and umpteen laws, then they expand them to include, 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 and so it's all pervasive, and that's what it's all about. I'll give you an example of what the right wing does to show you and the type of article they put out on, say, 
the Prime Minister Harper, who's to be overtaken by uh, Justin Trudeau. And listen to the slant of this article, for instance. This article says, Why Justin Trudeau's election is good news for their fight against climate change. And you know, you can't criticize this whole idea that it's all our fault that we've got climate at all. But anyway, it says Trudeau's predecessor, Stephen Harper, was a climate change skeptic, but the new prime minister brings a different attitude. So there's your opinion right off the bat, you see, by this reporter. And it says, for years, climate change activists have criticized the Canadian government as a global warming laggard. The Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper, who has been in power since 2006, has never taken climate change seriously. And that's what Conservatives are supposed to do, you see. Not take it seriously, because, it's, as you know, it's all a con for another agenda. When Canada failed to meet carbon cuts set in the Kyoto Protocol, a treaty Canada signed and ratified under a previous government, Harper simply withdrew his country. He just ignored it. But the surprise election of Justin Trudeau yesterday promises to change the perception. The Liberal Party leader emphasised the very real danger of climate change and pledged his support for what he called a pan-Canadian approach to the issue, an international approach. In 2015, pretending that we have to choose between the economy and the environment is as harmful as it is wrong, he said in a speech earlier this year. Even the resounding win, however, may provide surprisingly difficult for new Prime Minister Trudeau to to enact strong environmental and energy policy at the federal level in Canada. Control over Canadian environmental and energy policy rests largely with the country's powerful provincial leaders. That's misleading, too. Anyway, it says, Indeed, the country explicitly leaves authority over natural resource management to the provinces. And many Canadians still recall an ill-fated attempt in the 1980s by the federal government to grab a larger share of the profits from energy resources in individual provinces. That program was championed by none other other than then Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, Justin's father. Again, dynasties again, you see. And it's not, again, too, it's a whole, well, it's a whole other story how they got Pierre Trudeau in to governments. In fact, it's rather amazing the cons that can be pulled on, on the whole population. But it takes uh, complicity between all media to make it happen. And says, provinces have enormous authority in so many areas, and there are huge regional differences on this issue, said Barry Rabbi, professor of public policy at the University of Michigan. Canadians have struggled mightily to put together a federal policy that addresses emissions. Well, I've never heard Canadians have been asked to put anything together myself, because the pros don't count, you see. And it says, for these reasons, Trudeau appears keen on implementing a carbon pricing scheme, that's your cap and trade and all that, that would set targets for emission reductions at the federal level and allow for provinces to design programs independently to meet those goals. Now, shortly, folks, uh, with this final Paris Treaty that will be signed in December, uh, you, you wait and see uh, as you ramp it all up. And if you think you're paying a lot now for energy and all the rest of it, Wait till you see when they're finished with this, because they're going to bring you into utter austerity. That's part of the goals. I've said for years that austerity means that you're spending money, you're left over at the end of the month, if you've got any at all. It's all going to go to, to essential bills, maybe even penalties and so on. 
This is the program which still needs to be fleshed out may, may bear some similarity to the present Barack Obama's Clean Power Plan, said Rabbi, which sets emission reduction standards for each state based on its current, current energy sources. Now, we are living in one of the coldest climates in the world here, in this part of Canada where I'm living. And I'm telling you, it won't be, uh, lots of folk will start moving. Again, too, they can make everything happen without forcing you off by an order. They can make you just start drifting away from uh, northern areas or rural areas and so on because you, you won't be able to afford to live there anymore. Because everything that keeps you warm is based on carbon, even electric, because it, it's still something burning somewhere to make it happen. If not, it's nuclear power. And if it's nuclear power, believe you me, uh, uh, that's going to go down the tubes eventually as well. Because once you've got your nothing but nuclear power, they're going to start uh, reducing uh, the outputs to the different people and giving you even rationing down the road. That's all in the books, you wait and see. Now, the provinces have already, everything's always done way in advance of what they tell you at the time. The provinces in Canada already were ordered by the federal government a few months back to come up with their own recommendations for the different provinces of what they're going to be put into effect when this thing is just signed. The signing is a formality, the one in December in Paris, on carbon and so on, climate change, and it's all your fault. And you're going to pay, 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 believe you me. And it's a, a redistribution of wealth by taking your cash and putting it into third world countries so that they can basically have international corporations then set up for free, you pay, you pay for all, uh, their factories in third world countries. That, that's really what it's all about. Anyway, it says here, the stronger climate action from Canada won't stop global war, uh, warming on its own. We've had the coldest winters for years, the last few years. Uh, the country emits only 2% of the world's carbon emissions from the consumption of energy. According to the Union of Concerned Scientists, oh, a Union of Concerned Scientists, all on the take, of course. Uh, and of course, there's nothing political in it. No, there never is with the scientists. My God, science has always been political, folks. Who do you think funds them all? It says, though it has one of the highest per capita rates in the world, but experts say the defeat of a high-profile climate skeptic like Harper plays an important role in the global debate over climate change. In other words, they brought it Justin Trudeau, who was writing the old superstar status that was created for his dad to get in in the first place. And he's writing the coattails of dad. Uh, and the memory is still there with a lot of Canadians. And so they go and vote for someone uh, and... Because Daddy was a superstar, even though he left the country in an awful mess and massive debt, his dad too was head of the Canadian Comintern, Communist International Group, and led it to the delegation from Canada to the Soviet Union, Moscow, in the nineteen. It was nineteen fifty-two uh, when he ran for election. His dad, as Pierre Trudeau, uh, not, I don't think one paper mentioned that, which tells you it's, it's all rigged. Everyone's always rigged. There's, for left-wing and right-wing, you understand, it's always been the same agenda. Uh, the whole left and right-wing paradigm is for your consumption, to, so that you, you, you think you're going to get a change. You don't, you don't have revolutions every few years. You have, you have votes, you see, and it stops revolutions and things like that. Uh, and it works awfully well. You vote the last lot out, you get the next bunch in, 
and now it's time, of course, to be international. So in comes in comes um, Justin Trudeau. So anyway, where's this all going? Well, let's go back again to George Orwell, shall we? And Orwell wrote a book, uh, wrote a letter, I should say, to Noel Wilmot in 1944. She says, many thanks for your letter. You ask whether totalitarianism, leader worship, etc. And that's what totalitarianism is. I don't care if it's been put across by the big star, superstar creating mechanism and machinery uh, for politicians that wear business suits or, or even casuals. And that's how they brought his dad out, Trudeau's dad, at one time with his big wide-brimmed hat. He was a new trendy type of leader for, for the era. And uh, it doesn't matter, as long as it's not uniform, you see. So anyway, whether totalitarianism, leader worship, etc. are really on the upgrade in instance, the fact that they are not apparently growing in this country and the USA. This is during World War II. He said, I must say I believe or fear that taking the world as a whole, these things are on the increase. Hitler, no doubt, will soon disappear. They knew that back then. But only the expense of strengthening A, Stalin, the Soviet communist totalitarian state, uh, B, the Anglo-American millionaires, and C, all sorts of petty furors of the type of de Gaulle. That was General de Gaulle of France. All the national movements everywhere, even those that originate in resistance to the German domination, seem to take non-democratic forms. To group themselves around some superhuman Führer, such as Hitler, Stalin, Salazar, uh, Franco, Gandhi, de Valera of Ireland, are, they're all varying examples. Uh, that's what they were doing. The press was really building them up into superstar status, all the dictators, and to adopt the theory that the end justifies the means. That still runs true today. You're not running under democracy. You're simply brainwashed at your... Everywhere the world movement, the world movement seems to be in the direction of centralized economies which can be made to work, in quotation marks, in an economic sense, but which are not democratically organized, and which tend to establish a caste system. Caste systems, a class system, you see. With this go the horrors of emotional nationalism and the tendency to disbelieve in the existence of objective truth because all the facts we have to fit in with the words and prophecies of some infallible Führer. Already history has in a sense ceased to exist. That is, there's no such thing as a history of our own times which could be universally accepted. And the exact sciences are endangered as soon as the military necessity ceases to keep people up to the mark. Hitler can say that the Jews started the war, and if he survives, that will become official history. He can't say that two and two are five, because for the purposes of, say, ballistics, they have to uh, make four. But if the sort of world that I'm afraid of arrives, a world of two or three uh, great superstates which are unable to conquer one another, two and two could become five in the f- if the fewer wished it. That, so far as I can see, is the direction in which we're actually moving, though, of course, the process is reversible. As to the comparatively, uh, com- comparative immunity of Britain and the USA, whatever the pacifists, etc., may say, we have not gone totalitarian yet. 
And this is a very hopeful symptom. I believe very deeply, as I've explained in my book, The Lion and the Unicorn, in the English people and in their capacity to centralize their economy without destroying freedom in doing so. But one must remember that Britain and the USA haven't been really tried. They haven't known defeat or severe suffering. And there are some bad symptoms to balance the the good ones. To begin with, there's the general indifference to the decay of democracy. This is back in World War II. Do you realize, for instance, that no one in England under 26 years of age now has a vote? And that so far as one can see, the great mass of people of that age don't give a damn for this. You think, you think the techniques of keeping us dumb and stupid and indifferent are, are new? Of course they're not. They've been used. But things that work are never tossed out by those who rule. And most folk are, are still the pros in, in, in every age, you see. They're kept worrying and scurrying and having the occasional beer in the pub or wherever it happens to be and they feel they're alive, yada, yada. And they don't really know what's going on. And as they up to the age of 30, they're, they're, they're simply chasing sex, sex, sex today more so than ever. And they're, and they're encouraged that way. It's been created for them to do so. Anyway, so secondly, there's the fact that the intellectuals are more... To, now, this is very important. Secondly, there is the fact... Remember I told you many, many times... The on board and the scientific system to run ours at all are the intellectuals and intelligentsia and universities and so on. It's a fact that the intellectuals are more totalitarian in outlook than the common people. On the whole, the English intelligentsia have opposed Hitler, but only at the price of accepting Stalin. Most of them are perfectly ready for dictatorial methods, secret police, systematic falsification of history that's happening all the time now as long as they feel that it is on our side. Indeed, the statement that we haven't a fascist movement in England largely means that the young at this moment look for their fewer elsewhere. One can't be sure that won't change, or one can't be sure that the common people won't think ten years hence, as the intellectuals do now. I hope they won't, even trust they won't, but if so, it will be at the cost of a struggle. If one simply proclaims that all is for the best and doesn't point to the sinister symptoms, one is merely helping to bring totalitarianism nearer. And he goes on to talk about, uh, he says, You also ask if I think the world tendency is towards fascism. Why do I support the war? It's a choice of evils. I fancy nearly every war is that, a choice of evils. I know enough of British imperialism not to like it, but I would support it against Nazism or Japanese imperialism as a lesser evil. Similarly, I would support the USSR against Germany because I think the USSR cannot altogether escape its past and retains enough of the original ideas of the revolution to make it a more hopeful phenomenon than Nazi Germany. I think and have thought ever since the war began in 1936 or thereabouts that our cause is the better, but we have to keep on making it the better, which involves constant criticism. So, you, get little, you glean little bits of what he knew back then, that the intelligentsia are on board with, uh, uh, with basically this whole totalitarian form of governing, not just the people of one country, but the planet, you see. 
And there's only one system runs the world and runs all the different parties and plays the game, you see, on us. And when you go through that too, you find out that many folk knew that you couldn't vote in Britain back in 1944 until you're 26 years of, of age. And again, it's talking about the memory hole for history, how they keep changing it. All you hear is from, again, most folk get their, 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 what they think is history from the History Channel nonsense, totally updated uh, for the times we're living in today, or in movies. And they think it was all about suffragettes. They think, oh, but they got the vote for women long, long before. And here, here you go. So it just shows you how misinformed we really are. And then you go into this, you see. We talk about Orwell and Huxley. Now, this next letter, basically, is to George Orwell from Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley used to be his French teacher, in fact, at Eton. And um, he wrote uh, Brave New World. Actually, it was 1931 that came out. So... He had a different take, a different look on how we could be all cajoled and, and guided into this new system of totalitarianism. Whereas George Orwell still saw the totalitarian movements, the massive armies and uniforms and uniform leaders and so on. So he disagreed with how it could be brought in, this whole system. And in reality, I think they were both right because... During the, the, this war on terror, which has taken away the rights of almost everybody, and given the gov- gave the government well, the government gave itself the rights to spy on all of us all the time because you're under uh, under a totally controlled society as never before. Everyone must be completely predictable, and that's why everything's electronic. It's updated every day by you and the big boys have got complete personality, daily profiles updated on you by yourself. So you're, you're predictable. Anyway, here's the letter from Huxley. It says, Huxley starts off the letter praising the book to Orwell, describing it as prof- profoundly important. He continues that the philosophy of the ruling minority in 1984 is a sadism which has been carried to its logical conclusion by going beyond sex and denying it. Then Huxley switches gears and criticizes the book writing, whether in actual fact the policy of the boot on the face can go on indefinitely seems doubtful. My own belief is that the ruling oligarchy will find less arduous and wasteful ways of governing and of satisfying its lust for power. And these ways will resemble those which I describe in Brave New Worlds. Basically, while praising 1984, Huxley argues that his version of the future was more likely to come to pass. And so that you wouldn't, by scientific means, you see, it won't be the boot standing on your face forever and stomping you forever. It'll be a a kind of a nice furry moccasin or something, you see. And you won't recognize it as such for what it really is. Still, this, in other words, the intent is just the same, and the results are even more efficient because you cooperate. Then you see, in Huxley's seemingly dystopic world state, the elite amuse the masses into submission. It's a very good expression. 
massive entertainment zone, with a mind-numbing drug as well called Soma, and an endless buffet of casual sex. Does that ring a bell, eh? Or was Oceana, on the other hand, keeps the masses in check with fear, thanks to an endless war, like war forever, uh, under terrorism, and a hyper-competent uh, surveillance state. At first blush, they might seem like they're diametrically opposed, but in fact, an Orwellian world and a Huxleyan one are simply two different modes of oppression. But actually, they're combined at the moment, before they go into the complete uh, invisible one. You see. Obviously, we are nowhere near dystopic version, but the power of both books is that they tap into our fears of the state. While Huxley might make you look askance at The Bachelor or Facebook, Orwell makes you recon horror at the government throwing around phrases like enhanced interrogation and surgical drone strikes. And I'll put the link up for that too. Actually, the whole letter to Orwell is awfully good. Actually, I will read the letter because it's too interesting. So it was very kind of you to tell your publishers to send me a copy of your book. It arrived as I was in the midst of a piece of work that required much reading and consulting of references. And since poor sight makes it necessary for me to uh, ration my reading, I had to wait a long time before being able to embark on 1984. Agreeing with all that the critics have written of it, I need not tell you yet once more how fine and profoundly important the book is. May I speak instead of the thing with which the book deals... Now listen to this too. This is from Aldous Huxley. The ultimate revolution. Don't forget that. The first hints of a philosophy of the ultimate revolution. The revolution which lies beyond politics and economics. And which aims at total subversion of the individual's psychology and physiology. Are to be found in the Marquis de Sade who regarded himself as the continuator or the consummator of Robespierre and Babeuf. The philosophy of the ruling minority in 1984 is a sadism which has been carried to its logical conclusion by going beyond sex and denying it. And he goes on to the boot in the face and so on. My own belief is that the ruling oligarchy will find less arduous and wasteful ways of governing and of satisfying its lust for power. And these ways will resemble those which I described in Brave New World. I have had occasion recently to look into the history of animal magnetism. He's talking about hypnosis and so on. And, and how to indoctrinate people through even sleep and so on. It's much like um, the deep patterning and, and so on. It was carried out by Cameron in Canada at the time, which got a lot of press later on, of course. That was MK Ultra, of course. And he says, I have been greatly struck by the way in which, for 150 years, the world has refused to take serious cognizance of the discoveries of Mesmer, Braid, Esdale, and the rest, partly because of the prevailing materialism and partly because of prevailing respectability. 19th century philosophers and men of science were not willing to investigate the order facts of psychology for practical men such as politicians, soldiers, and policemen, to apply in the field of government. 
thanks to the voluntary ignorance of her father as the advent of the ultimate revolution was delayed for five or six generations. And that's what, that's what they mean by that, that ultimate revolution, is total submission by the people who have been totally brought into a psychological and behavioral way of managing them all. You know, political correctness. Another lucky accident was Freud's inability to hypnotize successfully and his consequent disparagement of hypnotism. This delayed the general application of hypnotism to psychiatry for at least 40 years, but now psychoanalysis has been combined with hypnosis, and hypnosis has been made easy and indefinitely extensible through the use of barbiturous drugs, which induce a, a hypnoid and suggestible state in even the most recalcitrant subjects. Now remember, too, that... Um, uh, this is a very old letter, and he knew of people who were testing other means of altering what we think and through the brain. Uh, in Tavistock, for instance, he talks about that much, much later, uh, not in this letter, uh, where they actually put wires and, and electrodes in folks' brains. And then you had Delgado as well, doing it remotely by implants. And this famous one was a bull, and of course, but he was actually doing it with people too, with men, prisoners, and so on, and, and some from the military. So, uh, and now, of course, we have Brzezinski yapping in the 1970s uh, and the Technotronic era, uh, between two ages and so on, the Technotronic era uh, chapter of how electromagnetic signals can pulse through the air will affect the moods of people and control behavior and so on. Wi-Fi is everywhere now. Essays with the next generation believe that the world's rulers will discover that infant conditioning, well, that's, see, that's already here, it's done totally, and narco-hypnosis are more efficient as instruments of government than clubs and prisons, and that the lust for power can be just as completely satisfied by suggesting people, suggestion, you see, into loving their servitude as by flogging and kicking them into obedience. In other words, I feel that the nightmare of 1984 is destined to modulate into the nightmare of a world having more resemblance to that which I imagined in Brave New World. The change will be brought about as a result of a felt need for increased efficiency. Meanwhile, of course, there may be a large-scale biological and atomic war, in which case we'll have nightmares of other and scarcely imaginable kinds. So, just reading the letters and exchanges from people who were in, who mixed with an upper elite and who got lots of information and gossip at dinner tables and so on from the upper elites and all the different parties they attended. Uh, they, they knew a lot more, especially Huxley perhaps, in what was really being planned. Because his brother, of course, Huxley's brother, uh, Julian Huxley, was the head of, was it UNESCO? And he made amazing speeches. I read them on the air, going to the archive section at cutting through the matrix.com and listened to the, me uh, reading that uh, whole uh, speech he gave at the United Nations to do with Planned Parenthood, of course, and the mandating who get born, who wouldn't, and how they would knock man off its pedestal, a supreme kind of earthly being, and bring him down to the level of animals and all the rest of it. It's all been done pretty well today. Now, keep in mind what Huxley said about intellectuals and their lust for power. Uh, you can put that into that too, the scientific class, you see, including all the climate scientists who get paid masses of money now, by our money, our tax money, 
to brainwash us for political reasons for a whole Agenda 21 phenomenon. Karl Marx said that religion was the opiate of the masses, but I say that totalitarianism is the opiate of intelligentsia. Keep that in mind, and here's an article here written a few years ago, actually, I think two or three years ago, maybe a couple of years ago, on um, Justin Trudeau. Yeah, 2013. It says, Justin Trudeau's mind may be a bit like a teenager's bedroom, which is nonsense. He's no teenager, by any means. But the liberal leader's recent praise for Chinese dictatorship. I'll read it again for the hard of, of thinking. The liberal leader's recent praise for Chinese dictatorship was surely more a case of careless wording than careless thought. Surely it was, eh? Yeah, it must have been. He used dictatorship when he should have used something like sustainable, well-designed central coordination. Because, as you know, uh, it's still a dictatorship in China. Hmm? Remember the lust for dictatorships, as Huxley was saying? Mr. Trudeau was asked at a ladies' night function which nation's administration he had admired most outside of Canada. His response was, you know, there's a level of admiration I actually have for China because their basic dictatorship is allowing them to actually turn their economy around on a dime and say, we need to, to go green fastest. We need to start investing in solar. The contention that China is some sort of green model is flat-out ridiculous. This week's 2013 IEA World Economic Outlook confirmed that the smog-bound Middle Kingdom, China, is destined to be the world's largest and fastest-growing user of fossil fuels, in particular coal, for at least the next decade. Criticism arose not over that true gaffe, but over praise for dictatorship. But was Mr. Trudeau really saying anything outrageous? Dictatorship, that is, control of people's lives, has always been the central motivating force of leftist ideology. Praise for dictatorship is a more efficient and even more moral system has a long history amongst not just fellow travelers of communism and useful idiots on the left. Prominent economists such as Paul Samuelson thought it inevitable after World War II that Soviet communism would outstrip the West. In his younger days, Mr. Trudeau's father, Pierre, declared, remember Pierre led the Comintern and the National Communists to, of Canada to uh, the Comintern meeting in Moscow. We have a great deal to learn from the Soviet Union. That was his, this was Justin's dad talking. As liberal prime minister, he was an unabashed fan of both the Castro and Mao regimes. In the wake of the 1989 Tiananmen Square Massacre, you know, when the folk were trying to get democracy in China and were run over with tanks and stuff. He took Justin, the present Prime Minister, and his brothers to China, where he was treated as a hero. Support for dictatorship tends to be based on power, lust, or economic ignorance, even on the part of Nobel economists. Everything's politicized, folks, and given you for a reason. It went through a bit of rough spot on the work week of the Soviet collapse, but had already been building a new head of steam in the environmental movement. You better believe it, because it's not environmental. That's the excuse that's been used. That's a Trojan horse. The enormously influential 1972 book Limits to Growth called for a totally new form of society. That was a club of Rome, remember? 
Again, go to the archives, cuttingthroughmakes.com. By the way, when you're there, have about tossing a donation my way once in a while, because I'm telling you, uh, for the amount of stuff I put out over the years, there's, there's hardly anything comes in here at all. And you're getting all that information for free out there. Massive website. And mention me too once in a while if you're on some other show. And uh, and where you get the information from, it helps. It really helps. There's only a few do, and they're not in, this, they're not in Canada or the States. <laughs> the ones that are abroad tend to do it more so. Anyway, it says, it says uh, a totally new form of society. That uh, was limits to growth. With much greater restrictions on human freedom. Well, that's where you are now, folks. In 2012, one of the Limits authors, Jorgen Randers, produced another book, 2052 it was called, launched the annual meeting on the World Wildlife Fund, in which he specifically praised the Chinese model again and expressed concern at the possibility of counter-revolution. By the way, I've, I've heard the BBC do documentaries on them and other countries have done the same thing, uh, praising China and saying that it's a model state for the world. Where you know, the, the top intelligence had ordered you to do something, you better just jump to it and hop to it, and that's it. That's why the UN has, has said the same thing. It is the moral state for the world. This article goes on to say, Maurice Strong, the man who organized much of the UN's political maneuvering behind the climate fiasco, very important guy. He was picked up by Rockefeller years ago. He was a young guy and um, trained to, to push all this stuff. But he's always been a Sinophile, Maurice Strong, he loves China. Following his implication in the Iraq oil for food scandal, Mr. Strong moved to Beijing. He was in, they're all corrupt, by the way, all corrupt. And this article goes on and on and on, but the thing what I'm trying to say is, that's the present Prime Minister now of Canada, who made the gaffe about, uh, right, not to him it wouldn't be a gaffe, it wasn't a Freudian slip as such. He really said what he believed at the time. It wasn't afterwards he realized that the folk weren't ready for it yet. They must keep the deception up, you see. And he's going to push the whole carbon tax, everything through, the whole agenda for the United Nations and the distribution of your wealth across the planet in December at the Paris Climate Conference. You wonder who voted for the guy, if they, if, if they actually remember any of these kind of things he's said before, or did they care? Or is it the old story, like Britain now too, very few folk bore voting, they're so disgusted with all of politicians. And they don't know, they just know something's kind of wrong, that nothing changes, but they don't know why it doesn't change. It doesn't change because it's not planned to change. There's one agenda. The right wing does it, what it's, it's supposed to do when it's put in power is to keep you going thinking it's all all for the nation. And, and meanwhile, Harper of Canada, the Prime Minister, who just taken over, of course, he's, he's, he's gone now, he's getting taken over by Justin Trudeau. Harper signed us all into TPP and all these secret deals. Where's the democracy there? It doesn't exist. And Pierre Trudeau uh, was the same way. And now his son, uh, the globalist, uh, it's going to push it all the way to one agenda with all the same goals for the same group above it all that run it all because they don't believe in democracy. Margaret Thatcher said something similar when she retired supposedly from being the Prime Minister of Britain. She said she now belonged to an elite club and she was speaking of the Royal Institute for International Affairs that set up 
a long time ago, before it was called that, a different name, it was a Milner group at the time, to bring in a world governmental system. They set up the World Bank, the Bank for National Settlements, they set up the League of Nations, they became the United Nations, they set up the trade deal system for the whole planet. We don't vote for them, it's a private club. She's saying we can get more things done now, because we all know each other, all the ex-prime ministers and presidents, and that we don't have to go through the cumbersome exercise of the public knowing about it, so they can get things done. The exact same way as the communists got things done in China. That's why they gave communism to China, to make it happen fast. You see? Because the Chinese didn't know what democracy was. Therefore, they could ram ahead under communism. The whole agenda of obedience and indoctrination with all the behaviorists and neuroscientists on board with it to indoctrinate the children. But then we don't care today in the West because most folk have had the total indoctrination in the West too without even knowing it. And they still think they're free. It works well. That's about all the time that I have to go through this and there's a lot more to this. Now from Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, where it already goes below freezing at night. God help us with carbon taxes. It's good night. May your God or your gods go with you. <laughs>